Hello, everyone. This is Admiral Jamie Fogo from the Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League of the United States in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Maritime Nation, a podcast designed to dive deeply into the policy challenges facing America's sea services and the role of the United States as a sea power on the global stage. We aim to provide you with the highest quality analysis on the most pressing maritime security challenges by joining in conversation with key experts and practitioners. This is our first episode of the second season of Maritime Nation. On this episode, I am joined by my colleague Andrew Park and special guest Rear Admiral Michael Baker. Admiral Baker currently serves as the Senior Defense Official and Defense Attaché for the United States of America at the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi, India. He is also the head of the Navy's Foreign Area Officer Community. He is a 1995 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy with a Bachelor of Science in History and a 2005 graduate of Istanbul Bilgi University with a Master of Arts in International Relations. Admiral Baker is a Navy Foreign Area Officer, a FAO, with experience building partner capacity, enabling U.S. coalition operations, leading military attache operations, and directing international strategy and plans in the Africa Command. European Command, Indo-Pacific Command, and Central Command areas of responsibility. Wow, that's a lot, and that's a broad base to draw from. Most recently, Admiral Baker served as the International Affairs Branch Head in the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations in Washington, D.C. Before his lateral transfer to the FAO community, he was an E-2C Hawkeye Naval Flight Officer who was deployed to the Western Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and the Arabian Gulf. Furthermore, Admiral Baker's experience as an Olmsted scholar had an undeniable impact on his naval career, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the podcast. Mike, welcome aboard. It's great to have you on the Maritime Nation podcast today. Admiral Fogo and Andrew, thanks for having me here today. It's great to spend some time uh, with you, and I'm looking forward to deep diving into some of these key maritime issues today. Outstanding, Mike. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are not aware, Rearmal Baker is in New Delhi, India today, and we are linked by satellite. It's nighttime in his AOR. Now, for starters, Mike, how is New Delhi treating you? How is your Hindi? And please tell us about the Navy FAO community and naval attaches and your role as the leader of that community. Over. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, India is treating me and my family wonderfully. Great people and a fascinating country that presents incredible opportunities uh, for, for the United States uh, and for India itself and our partnership. Admiral, my Hindi is poor, uh, so I have to rely <laughs> a lot a lot on my Turkish and a lot on French. Um, and I'll tell you, interestingly, when I engage with uh, some of the foreign attaches here, we, we end up speaking in French, uh, that being one of our common languages. So it's been really, really interesting in that. The, uh, I'll tell you, I am really proud to be a Navy foreign area officer and to be the leader uh, of the foreign area officer community. Uh, this is a small community, about 410 officers, and we reached our full strength about two years ago. But now we continue to grow because of the demand we have from fleet commanders and joint force commanders for Navy FAOs to serve in their commands. The FAO community is a really unique community in our Navy. 
in that our mission is to deliver a global geostrategic advantage for the Navy, the Joint Force, and our allies and partners, so that together we can deter, disrupt, deny, or defeat adversaries and provide security and sustainability, uh, stability, excuse me, that enables, enables prosperity. So that's our focus. FAOs are strategic level operators. We have to connect to strategic vision, to tactical action, to give really key advantages to our joint force. We're so proud of that mission. We're happy to serve out there forward in over 140 countries around the world every single day. Wow. Wow. That's, that's fantastic, Mike. And, you know, I think you're a little too humble here because they would not have sent you to New Delhi if you hadn't passed through the uh, Defense Language Institute, Foreign Service Institute, and gotten a decent <laughs> score in your Hindi. And the fact that you speak Turkish from your Olmsted tour and also French, you're truly uh, a Renaissance man. So uh, congratulations on that. And, you know, I couldn't agree more with you on the uh, French. So I'm a Francophone because I was a French Olmsted scholar at Sciences Po Strasbourg. And uh, I found that in all of my assignments in any country in Europe, uh, I could default back to French uh, because English and French seemed to be the international languages and the two languages that were used at NATO headquarters in Brussels and also at Supreme Headquarters Allied Planning Europe. It's remarkable that you're able to do that and switch back and forth. Bravo, Zulu. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as I said, Rarmal Baker is an Olmsted Scholar. For those of you unfamiliar with the program, let me give you a little bit of the background. The Olmsted Scholar program was established by soldier, patriot, and financier, Major General George H. Olmsted, class president and first captain in the class of 1922 at West Point. He was also the West Point Honor Chairman. General Olmsted served in both World War II and Korea and later founded a successful international bank. In 1957, he started a foundation eventually named the George and Carol Olmsted Foundation after his wife. And since 1960, the foundation has sponsored the Olmsted Scholar Program. The foundation also supports overseas travel and cultural immersion programs at our nation's military academies and senior military colleges like the Citadel. Now, Admiral Carlisle Trost was one of the first Olmsted Scholars in 1960. And he was a submariner who eventually became the chief of naval operations. Since 1960 to date, there have been 62 classes of Olmsted scholars in 218 foreign universities in 60 countries. They train in 44 languages and they master those languages, just like Admiral Baker did in Turkey. To date, we have a total of 708 scholars. That includes 46 flag and general officers and other senior leaders throughout the U.S. government and industry, a highly commendable program. So uh, Howard Dutkin's book, which is out of print now, but uh, I have a copy on my bookshelf, Mike, it's called Soldier, Patriot, Financier, and it explains Major General Olmsted's vision for the broadening education of our officer corps. So let me ask you, how did your Olmsted experience affect you? How did your Olmsted experience help you in this road to become the lead FAO and the SDO DAT in India? Over to you. Well, thanks. The, the Olmsted scholarship, the Olmsted family is in my professional life, the second most defining experience I've ever had, eclipsed only by going to the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, which, which would have to be a priori because I, I wouldn't have ever been an Olmsted scholar had I not. 
the Olmsted scholarship at the age of, you know, around 30 to 33 as a lieutenant becoming a lieutenant commander opened up uh, the world to me. It opened up a space where I could experience another culture, where I could deep dive into a foreign language, into international relations, and where I could really start to try to see the world through the lens of other people. And that perspective taught me that we need to explore and listen and understand more in the foreign space where our Navy operates every single day. It really drove me to committing myself to a life of understanding our international affairs and the position and the geostrategic position really that the Navy needed. Uh, I felt that I could add a particular value uh, to the Navy after that Olmsted experience. And it really gave me that first taste of, of thinking in strategic ways uh, and drove me into a, really a life committed to connecting the strategic down to the tactical actions. Uh, so I really can't say enough about it from, from a, a lifetime experience. Um, I wouldn't have become a FAO and I wouldn't be here with you today had I not been an Olmsted scholar. Wow. Whenever I hear great stories about the Olmsted Scholar Program, I wish I could have been part of it. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, I also had a great time studying at Georgetown School of Foreign Service for my graduate degree. It is a great program in a way that you get to learn from the great American scholars and practitioners with experience and expertise as former senior U.S. government officials. However, the Olmsted Scholar Program is completely different in that it enables already experienced military officers to develop foreign language skills and regional and cultural expertise firsthand on foreign soil. I can personally attest to that as someone who grew up in a foreign country. Some things can be learned only at the field. Another matter that I can personally attest to is the critical contribution that the attache community provides to our diplomacy and foreign relations. And I would like to make a note that this applies not to just the Navy, but also the different service branches as well. Also, from my past interactions when I was working in different research institutions and the defense industry, the FAOs were the ones who always provided the valuable insights. And sometimes they were even better than the ones provided by other think tankers or foreign service officers. I guess the unique nature of being a military and naval diplomat comes with benefits. Mike, I want to go back to a little personal history uh, with my experience in the Pentagon over uh, a decade. And in 2015, I was a participant in writing the cooperative strategy for the 21st century, parentheses R for revision. So uh, we took uh, CS21 uh, from an earlier time around 2007 and updated it. But, you know, it's kind of like the F-18 ENF. It was a completely new strategy. But uh, Admiral Greenard at the time did not want to uh, create any confusion, so uh, he just decided not to really change the name. In that process, we solicited outside reviews to include a noted Indian academic and a retired Indian Commodore. They enlightened us to the fact that references to the Asia-Pacific were like apples and oranges. One is the Asia continent. The other is a body of water, the Pacific Ocean. So why not apples to apples? We listened for the first time and started to refer to the region as the Indo-Pacific region in the strategy. Now, I have no doubt that this impacted the decision to rename Pacific Command Indo-PACOM a couple of years later. 
And the bottom line up front is that we finally recognize the primacy of India in the region, who is a very good ally. And your presence there proves that. So, Mike, I think you're the only current serving U.S. Navy Admiral who is a senior defense official and a defense attache at the same time. Previously, we had Rear Admiral serving in uh, Moscow, Rear Admiral Philip Yu, and uh, in Beijing, Rear Admiral Tom Hendershot. But what does that tell the world about the strategic importance of India with your presence there now and the importance of India to the United States in great power competition? What do you think? Yeah, Admiral, thanks. I, I think it's. Uh, I think you've really keyed in on something. That there, there are very few countries in the world, around six or seven, where we have a general officer or a flag officer serving as the senior defense official, and only one right now with a Navy officer at that. And, and I think that ties a bit to your earlier remarks about the importance of the Indo-Pacific. The maritime domain going forward into this century is going to play a central role in strategic competition, just as it has played a defining role in global commerce uh, for centuries. India is positioned incredibly inside of that region, particularly the Indian Ocean region, of course. India's geography, India's democracy, and the fact that India is a longstanding and old tradition of democracy really play to make India a growing power and a power of growing importance to the United States. We share a lot of things in common. Uh, we share a lot of human connection, uh, over 4 million Indians uh, living in the United States. And we really share a vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific together. So having a, a flag officer here is important to keep that relationship moving forward. And having a Navy officer here is really key to getting the greatest advantages we can out of our defense relationship. And I would like to point out um, the significant contribution of the late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who designed and formalized the Quad. Um, as the Prime Minister of India tweeted in response to Abe's unfortunate demise, quote unquote, we all benefited from Abe's contributions to the Quad and the Indo-Pacific Oceans Initiative. Also, I'd like to point out that he was the chief architect of Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific policy, the FOIP, that aligned closely with India's own Act East policy. We've got to remember that FOIP, the free and open Indo-Pacific, is a widely used concept by not only the Japanese, but also the U.S. government and other nations and partners. So Admiral Baker, do you have any takes on that as well? Thank you, Andrew. I, I couldn't agree more that uh, Prime Minister Abe was really a forward thinker uh, when it comes to the free and open Indo-Pacific and a forward thinker when it comes into the Quad, tying together that partnership with India, the United States, and, Austra and Australia is a unique and important way to move forward with a rules-based international order. You know, one thing that, that strikes me as I think through India's Act East and and Abe's uh, free and open Indo-Pacific is how the Indians talk about their acties. They say security and growth across the region, S-A-G-R, Sagar. And Sagar in Hindi means ocean. So as India looks across to the east for growth across that region, it's inherently looking across the maritime space as that place where it can move freely across the region and support its country its growth, 
and the growth of its friendly neighbors. So really a fascinating time to see uh, those two leaders come together in that kind of partnership. You know, Mike, I got to tell you, I love that acronym, security and growth across the region. At the same time, uh, you know, the dual meaning of ocean. I mean, that really says it all on the importance of not just India, but the Indian Ocean uh, to our national security, that of our allies and partners, and certainly India. Andrew, I know you wanted to talk more about the QUAD, which stands for the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. So uh, take it away. Sir, the QUAD is indeed a centerpiece of U.S. government's Indo-Pacific strategy designed to strengthen Washington's position in and commitment to the region. The four-country coalition comprised of U.S., Japan, Australia, and India envisions promoting democratic values, including the freedom of navigation. Since the first meeting held in 2007, the Quad has come a long way to materialize. The first leader-level summit was held virtually in March 2021, and the first in-person summit was held in Washington, D.C. in September 2021. We also held a joint naval exercise called Malabar. That said, the Quad is not a treaty alliance. Although the scope and area of cooperation reach beyond the traditional security, concerns about China appear to limit India's commitment. For example, when the defense arrangement between the U.S., Australia, and the United Kingdom was announced under the name of the AUKUS partnership, the Foreign Secretary Shringla responded that the AUKUS was neither relevant to the Quad nor will have any impact on its functioning. This is an unfortunate reaction of the Indian government as the AUKUS and Quad are inextricably tied to one another, highlighting some of the dilemmas that India faces, that is, whether to share or pass the burden to contain China in the region, and whether to commit to greater alignment with Washington against Beijing's ambitions. Admiral Baker, sir, would you please explain the background and the reason for India's pursuit of strategic autonomy, which frequently manifests in an aversion to the international alliance? Why is India wary of formalized multilateral agreements? Yeah, well, I think that's a, a, a great question and a fair question. Uh, and I'd like to tie it back to some of the comments you made about the Quad and about uh, India's uh, comments about AUKUS. So every country needs to make its own determinations of how it's going to govern and how it's going to defend itself. Some choose to uh, be completely uh, autonomous and independent, uh, try to have a go of it completely alone. Uh, others will form very formal alliances uh, that are tied together through uh, through treaty, and the United States is known to have quite a lot of these, and others rely on more informal connections or partnerships. And India has always fallen into the latter. They have preferred to have informal partnerships, not bound into a web of treaties, uh, by the way, not unlike a lot of American thought, uh, particularly at the founding of our own nation, uh, of wariness of, of, of alliances. For India's purpose for that is it gives them greater flexibility. Uh, consider where India's geography is. They're in a pretty tough neighborhood. They've got good, strong geography to the north, having the mountainous regions of the Himalayas, but they don't have friendly neighbors on either side of those mountains. Then they come out across the ocean with the great opportunity to go trade, and they want to maximize those opportunities in there. So that has been a perspective of how their geography plays in with their strategy and their choice to not entangle in particular alliances. I'll say then as well, when you think of the Quad, from India's perspective, the Quad is not a military uh, partnership, and India would not characterize Malabar exercise as a Quad exercise. 
In fact, the Malabar exercise started in 1990 as a bilateral exercise between the United States and India. And only most recently in this last year added Australia as the fourth uh, country into that exercise. So for India's perspective, uh, the Quad has its a great utility. It has opportunity to help us promote free trade together and free trade around the region to work on areas where we do align like climate change or in COVID relief. But India is keen to ensure that its partnerships and particularly its relationship with the United States is not only about China. The India-United States relationship stands on its own and it does indeed stand on its own. And we have increasing trade, we have increasing human to human connection. India now has the second highest number of students in the United States. And there's a lot of activities that we're doing together outside of the military realm. So India is really keen to show that this is a deep and rich partnership, not solely focused on China and not solely focused on the defensive aspects. I think that's a useful piece for us to understand as we go forward and engage with India. And we look at at those areas, at those security interests where we do overlap and where we are trying to guard against Chinese aggression and expansion across the region. It's important for us to understand those nuances and pick the right times and the right venues for those. Mike, I got to tell you, uh, that was an outstanding answer. Uh, first of all, the way you couched it in terms of the glasses half full, not half empty with India. And furthermore, I think General Olmsted would be very proud of you if he was here with us today because you're doing exactly what he wanted uh, the Olmsted scholars to do when they went on to uh, big jobs like the one you have there as the SDO DAT. You are uh, seeing the world through the lens of the eyes of our allies and partners. And that's what Homestead wanted us to do. And furthermore, to see the world through the lens of the eyes of our adversaries so that we could better understand why they do what they do. And in having a dialogue with uh, a close ally and partner like India, you can't walk in and uh, lay a set of talking points on the table and say, this is what the United States of America would like you to do. They are a sovereign country, uh, over a billion people, uh, growing daily. The economy is uh, coming through COVID and also some of the challenges with inflation and the relationship, as you pointed out, uh, with students in this country is, uh, is excellent. And so understanding where uh, some of their concerns and idiosyncrasies lie is very, very important. And I think uh, that's the reason why the United States Navy sent you to that job. So, uh, BZ. Let me shift gears here, Mike, and let's talk about Indian Armed Forces for a minute. It was reported recently that India would surpass China as the most populous country in the world in 2023. Pretty impressive. The Indian Army is the largest in South Asia with capabilities well beyond those of its South Asian neighbors. The Indian Air Force is the world's fourth largest air force. The Indian Navy is one of the largest navies in the world. However, the Indian military's inventory of equipment and infrastructure is filled with many aging platforms and systems, including old Russian aircraft and even Russian nuclear submarines. That's why the Indian government has been ramping up military modernization efforts. The most recently approved Indian national defense budget is worth $9.8 billion. After decades of India relying on Soviet and then Russian defense platforms and systems, the nation is acquiring more American platforms such as 
Apache helicopters, and Seahawk helicopters, two proven rotary wing systems. Currently, Boeing and Lockheed Martin are competing in India's multi-role combat aircraft program by offering the F-15EX, the fna 18 enf and the F-21. That said, there are some expected challenges as India continues to maintain a special and privileged strategic partnership with Russia, which guides India's plan to purchase Russian-made S-400 defense systems. And for the audience, you'll remember that this is the same system that Turkey acquired, which resulted in their expulsion from the F-35 program in accordance with the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, known as CATSA, on the Hill. What's your take, Mike? What kind of American platforms and systems is the Indian government considering? And how will India's defense ties with Russia affect the American defense industry's interests? Over. Uh, thanks for that question. And I'll tell you that uh, the U.S.-India partnership in the military spectrum uh, runs really deep. And it's, it runs beyond, as you know really well, Admiral, and, and you, Andrew, it runs well beyond the platforms that we, that we sell or we build together, but it runs into the exercises we do together, the training we do together, the operations we do together, the information we share with each other. Uh, there's a lot of richness and value inside of that relationship. A lot of times we get pretty focused in on the four military sales because they are the shiny object and they're big ticket items. Uh, they're important for both countries, they're important for industrial base. And building out that capability, improving that capability and that capacity uh, to deter uh, threats across the, the region around the world is really important. So, so I don't want to underplay it, but I do like to kind of emphasize that the overarching security cooperation relationship is, is pretty rich and broad. You know, India has no secret. India has had more uh, Soviet gear and, and Russian gear uh, than it's had from any other country. Uh, but it's been on a modernization program for at least a decade. Um, and I would estimate now that I would say that they're accelerating uh, this effort to diversify away from Russian equipment into other areas uh, and to diversify into equipment that's better than the Russian equipment that they've been operating uh, for several decades. That's been accelerated, but because of the war in Ukraine, there is a supply chain challenge that comes with that. Uh, understand that a lot of the the Russian origin equipment that India would purchase was some coming from Russia and some coming from Ukraine. Uh, so that creates a very good opportunity when you think about having, you know, if you will, kind of two parts bases um, that you could rely on. Now that those two are at war together and a lot of those factories are destroyed, a lot of the factories that still exist are churning out new um, material to sustain the war effort, that puts a pinch on India. So that has caused them, in my estimation, to accelerate this concept, this, this campaign that um, Prime Minister Modi has called Make in India. Yeah, and a sound campaign. You know, every, what country doesn't want to make their own weapon systems, have their own defense industrial complex? Uh, but that has really become an emphasis inside of the capability discussions that we have. So the United States, along with other countries, France has, has been very public on this. India, uh, Israel's been uh, a pretty good player in this are working deeply with India to look at what elements will be foreign military sales, what might be something we co-develop together, what might be a system we co-produce together. Uh, and finding the sweet spot in that is really going to kind of make the difference uh, here for India or break it. Uh, this, this effort to, to make in India and increase indigenization comes with some strategic risk. Uh, if India 
doesn't find a solution to do that pretty quickly and at a high level, it risks falling further behind uh, its, its big adversary and threat inside the region, China. Um, so we've got to kind of work through and think of smart ways that we can help. But we still have our own technology and own security uh, concerns that, that we need to maintain as we do kind of around the world. Uh, so sort of a long-winded answer there to give you kind of a broad set. But I will tell you that um, P-8 aircraft that they're operating, C-130 aircraft, C-17 aircraft, SH-60 aircraft, the Apaches, uh, the 777 howitzer, the, uh, and I could kind of go on and on into others. What is not well known around the world um, and around the industry, really, is that India makes already quite a lot of American origin equipment. Every Apache fuselage that's that's not sold to the United States is made in India. C-130 wings are made in India. Other major C-130 parts are made in India. And we're working now on different uh, munitions and different platforms that we can partner together. So some exciting opportunities. These are challenging uh, things to, to build together and to come to terms together in a government-to-government -government role. Uh, but we're excited about the opportunities. We think it's important. Uh, and I think there'll be some good opportunities here as we go ahead, um, as we see move into Aero India uh, Air Expedition here about the middle of February in Bangalore. And I think you'll see uh, some really great U.S. platforms out there. That was a very insightful and interesting uh, answer, Mike, and I certainly learned a lot. First of all, it's amazing the global impact that the uh, war in Ukraine has had on both uh, Ukraine itself, our European partners, uh, the NATO alliance, and uh, the United States of America, and India, as you explained. I think uh, there are some benefits there uh, for all of us. Uh, first and foremost, we've seen uh, a big drop in uh, the purchase of Russian gas and oil. And we know it's, uh, that economy is a one-trick pony. It relies on revenue from gas and oil, uh, but also uh, Russian foreign military sales. So Russian equipment is uh, no longer attractive. It may be less expensive than uh, Western military equipment. But as you said, uh, with the logistics problems and the sanctions, they're going to have a tough time uh, producing equipment that's reliable. And uh, it's good to see, you know, India uh, weaning itself off of that uh, former Soviet and Russian Federation equipment. And, you know, the Indian people, uh, it's an industrial nation. It's uh, becoming a very technical nation and some very highly trained folks in India who also come here to the United States for their graduate education at our institutions of higher learning. If you combine well-trained personnel with uh, superior uh military equipment, you're going to have one heck of a joint force. And I want to be the ally and partner of that joint force in India. You mentioned the P-8, the C-130, the C-17. Smart ball for India to invest in those platforms because uh, they're the workhorses of our joint force. And uh, you know we depend on them in the United States Navy for lift and also intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. It was very interesting what you said about the Apache fuselage, knowing that that's part of Make India and Prime Minister Modi's uh, plan to boost the industrial base. Hey, Admiral, the other uh, piece that I think is really interesting to watch in the Russia space is, you know, for decades, a lot of countries around the world got their military training from Russia. And now they're watching the Russian way of war uh, and going to have a lot of questions about whether that's the way that they should be training and thinking. So that's an opportunity for 
a whole host of NATO countries to be involved with uh, new partners around the world and help them uh, understand uh, a better approach for mission command uh, in the NATO way uh, of operations. Now, you know, in the case of India, in the Indian public, we have to be a little uh, realistic about some things here. They had a long relationship with Russia. So there are still affinities there. This is not going to change quickly. And we need to stay patient and we need to be persistent and we need to be a good, uh, trustworthy partner in this and helping to make this next generation closer to the United States. It is not a, a switch that's going to flip very easily. Um, and so I just I just really kind of keep that in mind as we move patiently and realistically through the relationship. Mike, thanks very much. And uh, what you just said uh, sparked another question in my mind. This is something I talk about a lot, and that is the, uh, the asymmetric advantage we have in the U.S. Joint Force across all of our services with the strength of our non-commissioned officer corps. So you know, I am a submariner. And on submarines, the senior enlisted man is known as, not as the command master chief, he is the chief of the boat, or ubiquitously referred to by the crew and by the captain as the cob. And, uh, you know, the cob uh, runs the team that runs the ship and reports the commanding officer. He has, uh, you know, essentially uh, exo status because his ear is to the deck plate and listening to what the crew is saying and uh, monitoring their performance. So how's it going in India with the non-commissioned officer corps? We know that Russia doesn't have anything like that. And that has been, in addition to the logistics failures on the battlefield, the failure of leadership and NCOs to try to direct those conscripts uh, has played out in spades over the course of the last year. How does India do it? Do they have a, an NCO academy, an NCO corps like us? Yeah, they, they do. India's actually got a very good, strong tradition of non-commissioned officers and also when they call junior commissioned officers and then into their junior officers and their officer grades. Uh, I, I presume that, that they may have picked some of this up uh, from the United Kingdom over the years. But they've got a good, solid tradition of this. And, it, and it's something that gives them, I think, great structure um, and, and great ability to lead you know, across this pretty tough and diverse terrain that they've got to defend. Absolutely. And one last question for you, and this is a diplomatic question, but you are there as the SDO dad at the embassy. And uh, since January of uh, 2021, unfortunately, uh, probably due to the nominative process and confirmation here in the United States, we haven't had a U.S. ambassador to India. And that's a pretty big gap in a senior diplomat. Now, I know that you guys are uh, weathering the storm and carrying on and probably have a charge who's uh, very professional taking charge. But is there a plan to have an ambassador confirmed uh, in the near or not too distant future? Over. Boy, Admiral, you, you know, I, I don't know the plan. I'm not privy to any of the uh, particular schedules of Congress on this. I, I, I can say that the president uh, renominated uh, Mayor Garcetti uh, in this new Congress. And so his nomination's back out there. But let me assure our, your listeners and, and my Indian friends and colleagues out there, you know, our team in the embassy is filled with really high quality senior foreign service officers and senior attaches from all the departments. You know, it's the third largest mission, uh, the U.S. mission in the world. Wow. Uh, I, I didn't really, know that. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's really big with, with four different consulates, 
I mean, we've got attaches from every department you can imagine, even in the FAA, for example. But we are led, we are led by a career diplomat uh, of the career rank of ambassador, which is very unusual, um, Ambassador Beth Jones, who's the Chargé d'Affaires at Interim. She's a, a deeply experienced diplomat, a great team player, and a phenomenal leader. So I feel uh, confident and lucky to have her and all my teammates in U.S. Mission India on board. Uh, we're doing great work. And, uh, and our Indian uh, counterparts across uh, the Indian government are working with us uh, really well. Well, funny that you mentioned that. I know of Ambassador Beth Johnson. She's absolutely fantastic. And uh, kudos uh, to you for your support as the SDO dad and all of the people that work in a military uniform there that uh, help our State Department colleagues. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my friends, Ambassador Phil Kosnett, uh, has got an edited edition of a new book coming out uh, this month, uh, and it's called uh, Boots and Suits. Uh, General McKenzie, former CENTCOM commander, wrote the foreword. I wrote the preface, and then there's a plethora of ambassadors and State Department senior officials who have contributed uh, to this edition published by Marine Corps University that talks about the fantastic relationship that you can have between uh, the military and uh, the State Department in the field. And I can tell you that I never went anywhere in a country without stopping at the embassy, paying a call on the ambassador of the Charge, and doing a country team meeting. It prevented me from making mistakes and increased uh, my body of knowledge extensively as I maneuvered throughout the European and African theater. So kudos and thanks to all of our State Department employees who are out there as expeditionary diplomats forward deployed on the pointy end of the spear in places like uh, New Delhi and uh, other places around the world. So ladies and gentlemen, I think uh, that's a wrap. Thank you, Rear Admiral Mike Baker, and Godspeed in your challenging new assignment. I would like to thank our listeners for joining us each month. If you have not heard our previous episodes, you can always catch up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. These episodes and all of the content described here today can be found on our new website, www.centerformaritimestrategy.org. If you're not a member of the Navy League, sign up as soon as you get off this uh, podcast. Uh, for 25 bucks. you can get the e-membership for a year and get access to all this great information. And special thanks to James Peterson of the Navy League for his support in making the recording and editing of Maritime Nation possible. We look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. Fair ones and following seas, out here. Mm-hmm.